0: So this is the very first script by Renea Chavaria, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly. Which is a gentleman who's actually done a lot of other scripts for DS9 and TNG. None of them really that great. I looked at the list, and I can pull up the list right now since I got this up over on the sec- screen here. And it's just, I mean, it's nice to see a long-standing Star Trek writer show up, but at the same time it's like, okay. Like, what do we got here? <clears throat> Um, Perfect Mate was okay, I Borg, is him, True Q, Ship in a Bottle, all right, Face of the Enemy, that's pretty good, Birthright Part 2, Descent Part 2, he does this a lot, he also did Past Tense Part 2 over in Deep Space Nine, I don't know why I'm saying it that way. Um, he did The Muse, which is, evidence I despise, so there's that, he was involved in Trials and Tribulations, but literally all the writers were on that one, so that doesn't mean anything. Um, Chrysalis? Chimera? Penumbra? I mean, he's not a bad writer. It's just, okay. No. This episode is, however, a landmark moment in fictional history in general, but most especially in Star Trek history. And I mean that with total sincerity. This is the first episode Jonathan Frakes directed. Now, for those of you not aware, Jonathan Frakes is kinda awesome. And in addition to being kind of awesome, he's also a very good director. He is, in all honesty, among my favorite directors, especially when it comes to television. He has a very good sense of motion and style. He has a good knack for complicated... I don't know what the proper term is. There's actually a term for this, and I don't know the terminology, but I like to call them multifaceted shots. I'll give you two examples. Well, three, actually. Uh, Right at the beginning, there's the hallway shot where he's doing a chase cam in reverse. So he's, he's the camera, and these are the people, and he's following them as they move around like this. Almost immediately after that, he has a shot through the framework of the device, and somewhat later in the episode, he has one long shot of Loll stuttering around the uh, area as she asks many questions and data following it's one long contiguous shot until it ends exactly where it started he likes to do shots like this now this if i'm being honest this episode does have just a little bit of a hint of an amateur director about it and by a little bit i mean a lot if, if i'm just being like this is probably what i would like my first episode that i direct to look like you could see the promise but you could also tell that this is their first shot at it but i have seen many many other things that Frakes has directed since then and there's a reason he's one of my favorite directors, so... Woo! What I like most about this, though, if I can share this really quick... Freaks has talked about this many times, so I'm not going to give you the whole story. But to summarize, Jonathan Freaks really wanted to direct. Like, it wasn't just, eh, would be kind of nice. No, this was his passion. He was seeking it. He, he, it was basically his intended career move. And at this point in history, it wasn't the norm for Star Trek uh, actors to be given directing rights. It had happened from time to time. Later on, it would start to be written into people's contracts, and by the time, for example, Voyager came around, actors getting a chance at the directing chair was was the everyday occurrence. It was just part of the normal rotation. But at this point in history, it was still kind of unusual for one of the actors to say, no, I want to be on the director's chair. I want to be the one guiding and directing. You'll notice, by the way, that in this episode, Riker is practically a non-entity. I'm I could have lost count, but I believe he had one scene in the entire episode. Now, there's good reason for that, because this is his first episode, and you don't want a director who has just started directing to also be acting. It just becomes a little bit of a juggling work. Now, later on, Frakes would get better at acting and directing simultaneously. First Contact is a good example of that. But the point being, yeah, I feel like this is a great episode for him to get started on. And I'm glad that we got it, because, hey, but... Getting back to my point about him really working for it, um, he apparently had been pushing for this to the bosses, most notably Rick Berman, for some time, as early as, you know, early season two. And they basically said, no. (laughs) Right? I mean, now I know that sounds really harsh, but makes a lot of sense in context, doesn't it? You don't want just some guy to be doing directing. You don't want just to be like, yeah, sure, yeah, or I'll give you the directing reins, Sure, that could have long-term consequences. We don't want to damage the show, blah, blah, blah. But, so Frakes was told, no. And then he went, and he spent time in the editing room, and he talked to the other directors, and he talked to the camera crew, and he talked to the film crew, and he's like, hey. He learned. He pushed for it. It's something I've actually talked about many times when it comes to Star Trek, that drive for a career, that concept of a career Freaks actually embodied the Star Trek, excuse me, the Federation ideal of having a career-focused mindset, of being like, I want to be this, and really pushing for it. And his ambition drove through, and he managed it, and finally Berman's like, all right, fine, fine. We got an episode, you're not in it a lot. Here, I'll go ahead and hand you this one. And by all accounts, a lot of people liked him behind the camera. And there you go. I just wanted to comment on it, because it's kind of cool. Now... By total contrast, this episode also kind of highlights one of the reasons I don't agree with Michael Piller. Now, I know that sounds like a strange statement because Michael Piller is a fairly awesome producer in many ways and is almost directly responsible for Star Trek being revitalized in Season 3, as I have mentioned several times before. He was also integral to several aspects of Deep Space Nine, especially early on. So the man deserves credit, but I've noticed over the years that the more I look at him, the more I think that... I don't want to call him bad because I don't think he is. It's more like his style is something that I just don't care for. His personality, or his perspectives, or his preferences, whatever you want to call it, is just not mine. Now that's fine, of course. But what I mean by that is, for example, Michael Piller wrote and direct, and well, not no, no, Michael Piller wrote and produced uh, Star Trek: Insurrection, and that kind of makes my point for me. That was his baby, and well, it shows. But I mention it here because, and I'm going to quote this word for word. This is a note from Michael Peller to Rick Berman. He says, quote, I think The Offspring is a more serious, and frankly, better, episode than yesterday's Enterprise. End quote. Now, (laughs) I'm sure there are people in the world who think The Offspring is better than yesterday's Enterprise. I am not one of them. (laughs) But this is another one of those examples where, as weird as it sounds coming out of my mouth, I have to give some credit to Rick Berman. For all the man's many, many, many flaws, the man did have a bit of a pulse on the more political and corporate side of Star Trek. And in this case, he looked at this and said, no. Basically, there were... The summary is they were looking about which episode they wanted to promote and which episode they wanted to go live when and which episode they wanted to re-release because there were certain awards going out at the time. And there, was, there was a bunch of things basically about what they wanted to pro, you know, self-promote in order to get more attention to Star Trek. And Berman argued for yesterday's Enterprise. And as I mentioned last week when it came to yesterday's Enterprise, yesterday's Enterprise was arguably like the definitive cusp moment when Star Trek really started being shoved into popular media. So I think Berman was right about that one. Anywho, moving on. Um, so one of the things that happens towards the beginning of the episode is Picard is like, whoa, dude. Now I mentioned that because I have heard people for years, although I haven't heard it lately, but back in the day, especially in the convention scene, I would hear people just like, uh Picard's an idiot. He just doesn't get it. It's just a child. I don't know why he's such a problem. At least Picard sees the light by the end of the episode. And then I smacked them and smacked them and smacked them because they were stupid. Uh, no, that's not actually what happened, but that's what I would think about. I'd be like, mm-hmm. Yeah. And meanwhile, mental me is going smack, smack. The point here, just to be as completely blunt as I can, is not that Picard sees this as, you know, th- that Lal is not a child. Quite the contrary, if anything, Picard is probably one of the only people in this episode who actually understands that Lol is a child. He is literally the only person in the whole episode who really puts the proper gravity and indeed gravitas on the fact that, yes, I know, I just repeated myself, on the fact that LOL is effectively the continuation of a new life. That this is not just having a child, but this is establishing a possibility for the future, a, a, a realization of what could be a new norm. This has massive consequences. I... I mean, I shouldn't even have to explain this because one of the most common tropes in science fiction is the idea that we invented AI, and then it turned on us. Now, forgive me for agreeing with sci-fi debris on this one, but I don't think the real point is that we shouldn't invent AI, but it's that in almost all of those cases, it's not the invention of AI that's the problem. It's the total lack of understanding of the gravity of the decision. You are creating life, not just a child. That's something... Data, I can't believe Data misses the mark here so much. It actually irritates me a little bit. Data's like, hey, you know what? I don't think other people consult you when they have children. No, of course they don't, because other people having children is normal. (laughs) I mean, no offense, but if a new Andorian is born, the heavens don't quake. But you make a second Android. And remember, at this point in time, we believe that there is only one Android. We're going to ignore B4 and the mother, and the fact that Laura's still out there. Let's just ignore all that for a second. At the moment, at this point in history, as far as we're aware, there's data. And that's it. And data creating law that has significant and massive consequences. I've decided to rein myself in and not talk extensively about the, the severity of those consequences. Especially since most of them are so obvious. Okay, you've made a lol. What's to prevent you from making another one? And another, and another, and another... What's to prevent you from creating a race? What's to prevent this race from being use, use, used as tools? Like was the problem back in Measure of a Man. What's the problem with this race deciding they don't want to coexist peacefully with us? And what's the problem with this... What's, I mean, there's this, <laughs> I'm covering extremes. But this could go badly in so many different directions. And again, Picard seems to be like the only one who seems to catch on to that. There's this scene, it's a great scene. Uh, you know, he just, he just go, kind of goes like this, like, oh. And Data's just like... Because Data doesn't get it at all. Which is funny. Because that's the point, isn't it? That's the difference between emulation and action. So, and of course, D- Picard says it flatly. This is not, I'm not talking about parenting. I'm talking about the creation of a new life. I'm actually with Picard completely on this one. This isn't really about parenting at this point. This is about, okay, you've decided to do what? Congratulations, Data, you've established precedence. So, Lol, uh, one of the things I find weird is that when laws choosing, uh, I guess, it at that point in time, just, uh, gender and, and appearance and species, uh, a couple things are posited. First is the idea that whatever choice is permanent. Why? I know that sounds like such a strange question, but given what we see of Lull before, who, by the way, was, was acted by Leonard Crowfoot, Crowfoot, excuse me, who actually does a really good job of him. Uh, he was uh, back in Angel 1 as the simpering toady, and he's in another episode later on, but whatever. Point being, he does a good job as, as Lull 1.0. Anyway, so why does Lull 1.0 have to decide, and then it's stuck forever? Like, I know that sounds like a strange question, but... Look at LOL 1.0, and then look at LOL 2.0, okay? Compare them side by side. That's some fairly significant surgery, cosmetics, alteration, and modification to make that happen. There's nothing to suggest that that's a permanent altercation. This is also Star Trek, where cosmetic surgery is easy and cheap, so let's ignore that for the moment. Um, When I say cheap, I mean it it doesn't affect anything. Obviously, there's no money in Starfleet. But they can just, you know, cling on up and uncling on up in, like, an outpatient surgery. That's how simple and easy this is, right? Point being, why does this have to be a permanent choice? I suppose that brings up the bonus question. Can Data change his gender if he wanted to? Affect his presentation or, or visual disparity or whatever? I mean if data just said I want to be called she, that's easy. Boom, done. I'm talking about an actual physical change to with regards to his body. Because remember, Lol is based off of him. <laughs> I, you see how this there's kind of some, some logical hiccups here. It makes it, it's actually kind of interesting because I think the episode might have been more interesting if Lol had chosen if they basically had multiple actors playing LOL throughout the course of the episode. Other than the two. I know they have the two, but yeah, more than two, in other words. As law decides and chooses based on you know what law wants to do or how law wants to go or whatever, but of course that would have more worked in a more long-term thing, and this is a one-off, so whatever. Moving on. Um, yeah. quick thought: this is, I believe, the only time we see an Andorian in TNG. I could be wrong. I only mention that because I like the Andorians better over an Enterprise. Is that just me? I mean, granted, I actually like Enterprise. So what the hell does my opinion matter? But. Anywho, or rather, to be slightly more clear, I like season 3 and 4 of Enterprise. Season 1 and 2, I don't want to watch again. So we'll see what we, what we do when we get there in the ruminations. I do, uh, I do like one little note. Data has a throwaway line. I have given her more realistic skin and tone. Okay, why can't you do that to yourself? Like, you see my problem here with this. I suppose you could argue that it's completely separate hardware externally. And thus, it's only similar internally. But then, why can't Data just take his internal hardware and graft him into something else externally? In the same general process, right? I'm sorry, I'm thinking about this too much. I apologize. I forgot that I watched Star Trek to not think. I'm sorry, a little ornery. I got a comment uh, from someone, this is actually just just this morning, who was like, I think you think about this too much. Just sit back and enjoy the episode. No! Anyways, so... Getting back to the, the appearance thing, though, I have to admit, though, it's amusing to me because they bother to have that line about, you know, we're going to go ahead and make you look realistic because that saves on expense of the episode. Now the actress just has to walk around with a specific hair and a specific outfit. Very, very cheap on the, uh, the effects budget, basically. And then there's a line, uh, there's actually a bit in the script later where Data teaches her how to blink so the actress can blink normally, so that's saved on the, you know, her, her particular hassle. Now, both of those lines are amusing, and in case you didn't catch it, this is actually a bottle show. This is an episode that was done to try and pull back on expenses, especially after yesterday's Enterprise was fairly expensive, and they're saving up money for what will become Best of Both Worlds. They were already planning that at this point. Um, so th- these money-saving features don't bother me. The only thing that bothers me is that Lol blinks several times before she actually is told how to blink. So, it would have been nice to see the continuity that. I was actually paying attention this time just to check. I was going to praise it, and then I'd notice they screwed up, so whatever. It's because I do pay attention. Um, I like how Data explains the definitions being connected to action. This is part of the undercurrent theme of the entire episode, which is not parenting life or rights, but again, the difference between emulation and action. I've already said that before. Because she has words and definitions in her brain of what a chair is, of what a painting is, and what that is, but now she's actually interacting with them and seeing them to develop experience. Data himself, I I say it's the difference between emulation and action. Data posits it as the difference between knowledge and experience, but it's the same concept. In other words, I know that's a chair, but this is the experience of sitting in a chair, right? And I do like that. It's a very important part of development of a sentient being, but also of the episode. Very nice subtlety, by the way. I want to give the credit either to Frakes or the woman. I'm not sure which, the, the actress who plays Lol. Because when she sits down in the chair, she does so in a very precise manner. And I can't emulate it. But, you know, she, she puts her arms out, then she does this. And then she sits down in the chair. And then she goes to, and does the exact same motion in the couch. And then puts the arms down. And then, like, notices the chair isn't there. And then, like, you know, the, the right armrest isn't there and has to adjust on the fly. It's just a nice touch. And it just kind of shows how she's developing there. Little, little subtle detail. So, Wesley is awesome. Um, just this once, Wesley, okay, I'm going to rewind for a second here. I have posited the theory, which I have to call it that, even though I I personally have no doubts about this theory, but I have to call it that because I can't prove it 100%. I've had the theory for many years that you learn more through interactions with other people at school than you do from the textbooks and essays and lessons at school. That's just my opinion. And I, it probably depends on the schooling and the lessons and all that. But I've always very, very firmly believed that that interaction between, of children of like other, you know, like-minded, like-aged children is necessary towards the development because of the way we're wired, because of the way we work. You know, you say something, they take that and, and process it based on what you said or how they said it or what it makes them feel. And then they something which say something which makes you process it. And the two things, you know, the two things, you know, all the kids interacting, all these ideas interacting, develops into what will become them. They take a lot of input, process a lot of output, and weave the two together into developing, into, into uh, adapting into more of what their personality will be, their preferences, their mindsets, all sorts of stuff like that. And I think that's awesome. It's one of the reasons why feral children are so goddamn horrifying uh, on so many levels. Because that's what happens when you are completely by yourself when you're developing. Please don't look it up. Just don't. Do yourself a favor. Anyways. So I bring that up because I like how Wesley brings that up. She knows all the databases and stuff in the school. Yes, but she needs to interact with kids her age. And... Wesley, of all people, is the person to bring up that idea. No one else says this. I guess Wesley himself is closer to the subject matter, for lack of a better way to put that. But still, I, I do like how he brought, brings that up. I also like how Lal says, what is my purpose? I, I seriously, for just a second half, expected her to say, does this unit have a soul? <sighs> so... There's a bit at the, at the school... And this is actually, uh, I, I want to give credit to Frakes, but this might be part of the script as well. So either script or or writer. Or no, script or director, sorry, I was saying that right. There's a bit where Data's sitting down talking to the teacher, and she admits, okay, so we thought we put her with the older kids, but that didn't really work out, so we thought we put her with the younger kids, but that's not working out. And rather than answering, the, they, she, he, she pulls Data over in the camera pans, and we see her standing off in the corner completely by herself, which is kind of defeating the point. It's a very powerful visual. You know, explanatory. It's, it's a good scene, basically. It, it gets across a decent amount of information in a very efficient and very powerful way. And then, of course, they spend some time discussing it the, the nature of being different and what other people tend to do towards what is different. Data's own comment, you know, I have noticed that many people try to mask fear with humor. I would, I would never do, do that, of course. That would be silly. But the point is uh, very well founded. And it, it, of course, makes perfect sense. After all, that is kind of what we do in general. We tend to ostracize what is different, and we tend to not be sure how to properly react to things that we have an innate fear of. There's sort of an instinctual level of fear when it comes to things that are different, which I'm not going to discuss here because that would would take forever. But the general idea is different is unknown, and unknown can be bad. And can be bad is something we need to avoid. There's the very basic breakdown of that. So that does make sense. What I find most interesting, if I could segue just for a second, is how many people I see who, despite fear, choose to embrace different. Cautiously, usually. But in other words, trying to see whether or not that different can, for lack of a better way to put this, add to the the greater whole. In other words, everything I said earlier about children interacting with each other, Imagine if those children chose not to interact with each other because of fear. Well, then they wouldn't properly develop, would they? But instead, they do make that choice to interact with each other despite fear because of the fact, well, I shouldn't say because, it, it's, let's be honest, it's because they're encouraged to. <laughs> let's just be bl- blunt about that. But in so doing, that helps to develop them more. Even the word different can have an extreme. If you are being encouraged to, uh, if you see someone who has a different skin color than you, or is a different gender than you or seems to be from a different place than you I mean I myself have seen that where someone how many of you guys have ever had the out-of-state kid right now I don't know how much that applies to other countries but here in the States that happens semi frequently where someone would have just moved in from out of state and they're the out-of-state kid so they're the ostracized one now I actually thank God for my mum. I I shouldn't say it that way, you know, I'm very thankful, in other words, for my mom, because my mom always taught me, try to think about what those kids are feeling, and that was the approach she used, she didn't say you have to go make friends with them, she didn't say you have to embrace them, she just said, try to think about what they're feeling, and if I could just segue for just a second, I remember this one time, this would have been first grade, although I actually had three first grades, because we used to move a lot, I was sometimes the ostracized kid, by the way. And by sometimes, I mean almost every time. But I remember this one time I was in first grade, and I I had a a couple friends there, and we were cool. And this other kid came in. I can picture his face right now. I don't remember his name. I want to say it was Andrew. This other kid came in, and he was new in school. And everyone was just like, "Mm," hmm, just doing that quiet shun thing. Not to the point of actual crudeness or meanness, just not really trying to interact with him. And I remember distinctly, we were out, we were we were doing a visual exercise to visually show how large a blue whale is by actually measuring out 100 feet and then drawing it on the, the sidewalk. It was actually very cool. But as we were doing that, he was just sitting on, standing off to the side. So I just kind of wandered over because, well, okay, rewind. I looked over him and I was like, God, that's going to feel horrible being over there. And I knew what that felt like, so I wandered over and then I was like, hey, we ended up being pretty good friends. For several years, actually, because he lived in the area. So even as I moved around, I was still within reach of him and we could still hang out and be friends. And I'm not saying that to praise or brag or anything else like that. I'm saying that because I've been on both sides of that equation. The kid who no one else wants anything to do with and the one trying to reach out to someone who who no one else wants to have anything to do with. And so I do feel that this episode does a good job of shining a light visually and in terms of the script on what it would be like to be that person. Uh, we sometimes call this the uh, oh, uh, the fish-out-of-water concept. Most TV shows tend to have this kind of an idea, the fish-out-of-water character or the fish-out-of-water you know, species in some cases or whatever. And data has been that for some time. But data has kind of become normalized. Lawless brand new and nobody knows how to deal with her. And I like how they shine a light on that. And they even emphasize to data how data himself has forgotten how much he used to be an outsider because his presence is so normal now. In other words, despite all entirities, this episode is actually a good step of development for data because better than anything else, it demonstrates how data has now become part of the normal crowd by showing him what it's like to be ostracized again by someone else, by him seeing someone else and being like, he, I believe he flat out says, I remember that. You know, it's, it, Paraphrased, I remember being that person. I remember being the person no one could interact with or no one wanted to interact with. <sighs> uh, let's talk about Admiral Haftel. Actually, no, let's rewind just a second. Before we talk about that, let's talk about LOL. So first, Lol has to kiss. (laughs) I sometimes wonder what Jonathan Frakes said to the actress. Like, okay, um, you need to kiss me. Now what's going to happen is I'm going to be like, hey, I don't recognize you. And I'm going to basically just kind of have a flirtatious thing. And you're going to smack on me. And I'm going to be completely flummoxed by this. Okay? Go. (laughs) Like, what kind of direction do you give someone that you are about to be kissed by? That's just got to feel weird. Anywho, but LOL, uh, again, shows that whole knowledge versus experience, emulation versus action thing. The reason I call it emulation versus action, by the way, is emulation is, okay, you did this, therefore I do this. No understanding, no depth, no complexity. It is effectively a form of bullet point syndrome, actually. But uh, when it comes to action, it's you're doing yourself. I could read a book about playing poker, or I could play poker. Emulation, action. Anywho, so, you know, there's some really great scenes in the bar uh, in Ten Forward. There's some issues with Guy in there. I've, I've decided not to bring that up. <laughs> Shrug. Uh, but I do want to mention how I do think Whoopi Goldberg does a very good job of the person who is trying to shepherd her, that is to say, LOL, in the nuances of interaction. Because if you think about it, really think about it for a second, any you interact with another person, I kind of do this too, even though I'm talking to a camera, but I always mentally think of people actually being right there, uh, which is why I kind of do this thing and gesticulate and all that. Because for me, I basically am actually talking to you. That's my mentality. So we all have a lot of things we do when it comes to interacting with each other. There's a lot of nuance and a lot of subtlety. Our tone, our gesture, our, our facial expression, our, our body language in general. Um, just kind of the the pace with which we're just discussing, the the specific circumstance which we're discussing. Oh, and dead last is the actual information we're saying out loud. A lot of information, an enormous amount of information is conveyed when we interact with each other. And there's a tremendous amount of nuance and subtlety there. And I like how they did a pretty good job of showing that. And Guinan, to me, feels like the kind of person who would be best at guiding someone else in understanding these nuances. Because Guinan's all about that kind of interaction and about observing it. That's pretty much her shtick, and has been her shtick since he was introduced in Season 2. She is observant. She pays attention, right? I like that. I like that. Um, I also like how... Uh, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. There's... Um, okay, real quick, real quick. There's a bit where Picard... So Picard was obviously the biggest one who understood, like I said, the gravitas of what's going on here. But Picard also becomes Lal's strongest advocate throughout the entire episode. Indeed, just like Measure of a Man, this if episode effectively becomes Picard versus Starfleet. I've had several people comment on the, the topic I'm about to bring up, and it boils down to, why does Picard have to defend this? Why did Starfleet not just start with this? Now, I know the cynical answer,, oh, well, Starfleet's a bunch of idiots, right? I mean, Admiral Haftel, who I haven't really mentioned yet, but we'll talk about him next, is, 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 a, is a stereotypical uh, obstructionist bureaucrat archetype. He, he's, he's one-to-one to the point where it actually is kind of illogical in terms of the script how obstructionist he is. But regardless of that, why was this just accepted by the, the Starfleet Council? Why was this accepted by the research board? Why is everyone just cool with this whole thing? Now, we actually have an answer for that, and I'll cover that in just a moment. But I do like how Picard, in his typical Picard format... See, rewind a second. Picard is the kind of person who has very strong moral opinions, but basically swallows them unless he feels he can do something through the system in order to make something happen. Um, In many ways, he reminds me more of Sinclair over on Babylon 5 than Sheridan. Sheridan would be closer to Cisco. You know, someone who's like, well, this is what's right, so this is what I'm going to do, and screw you. But Sisko, or excuse me, Sinclair and Picard both are like, well, this is what's right. How do I make that happen within the rules? You know, pretty much the definition of lawful good, as far as I'm concerned, is Captain Picard. This episode's a good example of that. Picard is very polite and very understanding and very accepting. He is basically way nicer than he has to be at every step he only starts actually raising more strenuous objections when he is effectively forced to when all of his attempts to accept and work along with and cooperate don't produce the necessary results in fact even when he finally really puts his foot down right before lol dies he just stamps his foot down and says no belay that order and the admiral says you are risking your career and picard says yeah i am But I will take this. You can accompany me if you'd like to. But we're taking this to Starfleet headquarters, and we're taking this to command. And I am fighting this tooth and nail. That's Picard. Because Picard's the person who, if he took this to Starfleet command and he failed, well, then he failed. But he's still going to make that attempt. Whereas, by contrast, Sisko, or Kirk, or Janeway, or Archer, probably wouldn't be so willing to adhere to the rules in their actions. Now, I'm not saying that makes Picard better. I'm just saying that makes Picard distinct. It's part of his character, and I like that. So let's talk about Admiral Evil. I mean, sorry, Admiral Halftel. Sorry. Um, I kept writing his name down wrong in my notes. I actually wrote down tail. because that's they, a lot of them say it like that, and then I was looking up the actor, and it's like, oh, it's Halftel. Whatever. Um, <clears throat> I don't like his character. He's a piece of cardboard. The actor's fine. The actor does a decent job of him, actually. And in fact, I think the only reason I never noticed how much I disliked this character before is because the actor does a decent job of trying to add nuance to an extremely one-note character. He is the obstinate bureaucrat. He's not quite as bad as Admiral Necheyev, but if this was Admiral Necheyev, none of this would have changed. Like, there would be no variance. You could just plop the, the actress in and it would fit perfectly. That's how bad this character is. Ah, oh, we've got to do this. Okay. Why? Well, because we've got to do this. And he, what's the worst part is he comes up with fake reason after fake reason after fake reason. And he's just, and every single one of them is addressed and approached. Again, Picard being lawful good just kind of says, yes, data is fully compliant. Picard is fully compliant. And finally, 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 it gets to the point where he's like, all right, look, uh, there, there's only two androids in existence and they're both on this ship. So that's unacceptable. And that's his argument. That's also very stupid when you think about it, because the same argument could apply to Data. Now, I know what you're saying. Oh, well, they can't force Data to not be on the ship. Uh, actually, yeah, they can. He's part of a military organization which can order people into new posts. I know, I know. Starfleet's not a military. He's part of a structured organization that has military ranks and therefore a chain of command which has to follow rules and orders and therefore can be ordered to a new post. Right? Right? I mean, if if this was such a concern, why is Data on the frickin' Enterprise, in the Fringe, doing some of the most dangerous stuff in Starfleet right now? If that's their actual concern? No. It's very clear from everything that the only actual interest here is, ooh, piece of candy, and they just can't wait to get their hands on LOL. You know what I mean. And try to figure out how they made her. He made her. And try to make more. Which is funny because... This is part of that consequences thing I mentioned earlier that Picard was cognizant of. <sighs> yeah, I actually don't have much else to say about Haftel. They mention how he has children. And what's funny is he uses an incorrect argument. Sometimes you have to learn to let children go. And yes, that's absolutely true. That is absolutely true. At a certain point, children need to leave the nest. Well, yeah, I, I agree. With exceptions, I agree. Um, Law's like a week old? Two weeks old? Hasn't really developed to the point where she understands typical social interactions yet. She's not there yet, buddy. <laughs> it's, just, it's like saying, well, this this three-year-old, it's, it's just, she's, she's getting on her own, you know? She needs to get out there and get and, and, and leave the nest. Uh-huh. No. Um, <laughs> I, uh, God, what else? I, I'm looking at my notes here. Uh, this is another one. His concerns aren't even about the consequence. Like, he, you can tell his real motivation. What I mentioned about the, oh, I can't wait to, you know, it's this new toy. It's this new research. I just can't wait to get my hands on this new research. Like, he, he's an admiral, but in, in most ways, he actually behaves a little bit more like a scientist. I would almost call him a mad scientist, but he's kind of leaning in that mad direction, even if he isn't fully mad, you know? But my, the best example for his real motivations and his real opinion on the matter is when he goes to tend forward. And he's like, you're having, this is, you're having her tend bar. This is a waste! This is a waste of her talents! This is a waste of her as a resource. Now. That is a valid perspective if she is either A, a tool, or B, a fully developed, functioning member of a society. And by that I mean, like, for example, if she was already in Starfleet. Putting someone like Data to Tend Bar would be a hell of a waste. But Lull is not like Data, as I just established. And that kind of demonstrates the fallacies here. Anyways, anyways. I haven't commented much on the actress at all. She does a fairly good job for the most part. The only downside, and I don't know if this is down to her or Frakes, is she acts more robotic than android-like. Now, I can't expect everyone to be like Brent Spiner because Brent Spiner has basically perfected acting like an android. But acting like an android, and I've I've used Brent Spiner's uh, performance as a way to kind of gauge this, is more about very efficient, precise movements where you only move in certain ways at certain times in order to emphasize certain beats in the conversation, like I just did with my face just now. I bet most of you weren't even looking or noticing, but you get the point. Um, by contrast, she behaves more like a robot, where each, each movement is actually very exaggerated, very coarse, and almost jerky in its movement. You can, can kind of see the difference there, as I just demonstrated again. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's different, especially since she can apparently develop beyond him, because she develops emotions! Which makes absolutely no sense in any level. <laughs> she also can say "I've." She says a contraction. I decided just for the hell of it, just because I'm that kind of a guy. While the rest of the episode was playing, I pulled up a script and uh, counted manually. Counted. Someone had listed every instance of data using a, contract- a contraction in the show, and I manually counted all of them. Um, <laughs> 121 times. Not counting the movies. 121 times Data uses a contraction in Star Trek The Next Generation. Now, that's not too bad across seven years. What's funny is 50 of those were in season one. Seriously. Anyways. But, yeah, I feel like the idea of her developing past Data wasn't properly or fully explored in the way it needed to be. It... If data if she is so fundamentally based on data as to be able to literally be a one-to-one copy in terms of mentality and brain coordination why what new has been added to the equation to allow this kind of a development if you put two rocks together they will not develop a third rock because rocks don't do that right Uh, That always bothered me. I'm just going to mention it in brief. It always bothered me. It would have been nice if they added something else, some other development or some other external force or some other technology or something that was basically this is this new experimental thing and I've done this with Lull and we'll see if it works. And that is what causes her uh, mental net to completely destabilize because in the end it does end up killing her, which actually is probably the part that makes most sense to me because her neural net is not designed to take this kind of input to be able to develop in this manner especially with regards to a mode of reaction so it makes sense that it would completely shut down um, it would be kind of like sending your nerves the signal of oh god I, I can't even give like, a good example like you know, something that your, your nerves are not designed to intake and so your nerves are just like what the hell is this And they're like, you know um and then uh and then halt half helps right at the end k <laughs> because he was a good guy all along, yeah, you know, if he had been presented as a more multi dimensional character throughout the early entire rest of the episode, that would have actually fit better if he had been presented as someone who really believed in his cause without being a jackass about it, or I don't know didn't quite agree with separating law but based on the circumstances, was willing to make the pragmatic choice. That would have made his final decision in his final heartwarming scene to actually mean a damn, rather than just being some guy who's like, (sighs) I got nothing else. I hope you guys have enjoyed. I'll see you next time.